Vix the Convince. Welcome to the Vix the Convince podcast. Here's your host, NewSpark founder, Paul Mosenson. Hey out there, it's Paul Mosenson, NewSpark Consulting and NewSpark Marketing. Welcome to Fix the Convince podcast. Today we're back to content. Are you content with your content? I always say that, right? Um, but content marketing and lead generation go hand in hand. And you'll learn more about that today during this insightful listen with David Fortino from Netline, netline.com, a content syndication company. And we'll talk what that is for those who don't know. He's the senior VP of audience marketing and product at Netline, where he is responsible for the strategic direction and adoption of Netline's content-centric buyer engagement platform. He brings more than 15 years experience managing the development of content distribution, audience monetization, and digital marketing and targeting platforms. And yes, he wrote that, not me. Hey, good. How you doing there? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. That was a mouthful, right? Well, believe me, the last two weeks of podcasts have been a little more because uh, of uh, <laughs> trying to pronounce names, but at least your name is easy. So, um, you I'll know, take it. yeah, so that that we, we took care of that part here. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, so, you know, I mean, I know with me, I've been in demand generation for years. I understand content and lead generation and um, what that means, really in this world, because we're all trying to, especially today, trying to get every name we can get into our CRM with different tactics and strategies, knowing that, you know, things are a little bit different today. If you're listening to this, it's October, 2020. So, um, but anyway, this will be good because, you know, we, salespeople do want to get names in their pipeline and especially now, and people are always looking to problem solve and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I've got some questions for you, of course, because it is a Great. podcast and let's, uh, do let's do it. So, you know, we talk about demand generation, which is generally meaning you're a company promoting your problems or a company's problems and your solutions to target audiences who are, I just say, they're not ready to use Google yet. You know, they're not there yet. That's why they call it demand generation, because we're trying to remind people that we have a solution if you're thinking about. So they're either using search engines or using channel partners, right? So um, why don't you define, in your words, content syndication and its role in this demand generation process? Sure, sure. Yeah, so to me, content syndication is all about discovery, and discovery occurs on both sides. Discovery from the end user or prospect side is about better understanding what's happening in the landscape via content prior to ever actually recognizing particular vendors that they need to be working with. Surely if you're fortunate enough to be a recognized incumbent, then they'll probably already know where to get your content, but most users don't. And you know that as a fact because uh, per Paul's point, Google exists, right? Um, most people don't know where things are on the web, if they did, Google wouldn't need to exist because you wouldn't need to go search for anything. You would just go to it. So content syndication plays that role in, in the sense that it's able to amplify your content out into not only appropriate audience personas, but most importantly, allow your content to engage with those specific audiences and deliver only qualified leads that explicitly meet the criteria of your campaign 
and we'll get into filters and such, but to me, content syndication is a, a tactic to, again, act as a discovery tool for the users to educate themselves through content, but it's also a discovery tool for you as a marketer to better understand your marketplace, to better understand the needs of your prospects. The types of people who even engage with your content tells you a lot about, was your content specifically addressing their pain point? Are you speaking to someone else that you didn't expect to be speaking to? And you're attracting an audience that probably likely won't convert, but your content was really attracted to them and or positioned to them. That happens a lot. And so, um, yeah, there's a ton of great learnings there, but education and laying the groundwork uh, for continued and sustained relationship with that prospect, that's the key role for content syndication. The final output always, um, myself included, working at Netline uh, is to develop opportunities that translate into closed one business. Um, anyone out there though is telling you that content syndication will directly translate into revenue within that same month, they're crazy on drugs or just flat out lying. And so um, content syndication will most no, certainly- no, really? Yeah, uh, will most certainly translate into revenue to for you and significant revenue if you stay the course. This is all about consistent and persistent messaging, both externally in the marketplace, but also what you do with those leads once you've received them. And I'm sure we'll dive into that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're purely targeted inquiries and that's where, you know, nurturing and all those things come in, of course. Well, and one thing to also consider too, is that in a landscape that's filled of vendors who are selling arbitrage curated scraped data, conduct syndication at its core is about obtaining first party and fully permissioned data. A user sees your content. They're not on your website. They're on perhaps another technology industry website. They see your white paper, your ebook, your webinar. They decide that, yeah, I'm going to register. I'm going to give you my name, my job title, my job function, my company size, and so on. Hit submit. And now they've proactively decided that it was worth their time, their effort, and also sharing their PII with you as a brand. Uh, does it mean that they want a sales call instantaneously? No. Uh, you can ask that question though. You're always allowed to ask that on a form if you'd <laughs> like, but uh, odds are no. And so that's all about you know setting expectations too internally within your, your teams as well. Yeah, that's kind of funny you bring that up a little bit because first sidebar question here is, uh, or comment, you know, is, you know, we always talk about, there's always, since the day one of demand generation and internet marketing was um, to gate or not to gate, that is the question, right? You know, we always say like, well, on a website, you don't want to gate your content too much because people aren't ready to give up their information yet and they want the content. You know, you might get more downloads and you start branding yourself a little bit versus the almighty lead capture, right? So, which is what, you know, all you guys do anyway. So it's kind of, you get, you, uh, kind of that irony there, but. Yeah, and I think that you can always find a balance whereby some content on your corporate site should be ungated. Anything that's amplified via paid channels, i.e. content syndication or anything else, uh, don't waste your money promoting ungated experiences. Uh, that's foolish, right? You're trying to back right. into right. a known metric. Uh, telling a CMO that you backed into 17,000 page views on your website good luck. Your career is going to be short. You'll be looking for a new job at some point. Um, vanity metrics mean nothing in demand gen. There, there's certainly upstream metrics that you pay attention to, 
but never in your wildest dream should you be reporting those to a CMO. And so we tend to be of the mindset that most of our content should be gated. And part of that's just eating our own dog food. The other gets back to marketing's ability to justify its own existence, both for my executive leadership, but also to our sales team. You know, saying that 1,300 people downloaded one of our reports on our site and not knowing who the hell those people were to our sales team doesn't cause any excitement. There are no immediate actions for them. To right, take. right. And at some point, they're saying, yeah, yeah, marketing, that's, that's great. Pat yourself on the back. And, uh, and there's nothing more to it. And so if you are a massive brand and capturing leads really just happens easy for you, and you've got some really unique product that you are a unicorn by definition, yeah, maybe, maybe make more of your content ungated and then just have the ability to reach out, be frictionless. But for most vendors, they don't have that luxury. And so the people who would argue for ungating content tend to be um, audience development and audience first mindset. I oddly share responsibilities of running the audience side of our business and the marketing side. So I sympathize with that viewpoint. Of course, I would love it to be ungated or just perhaps an email capture. The problem is as a marketer, I can't do much with that. Following a cookie around the web isn't all that intriguing to me. Um, and we've done it. It doesn't translate into the outcomes that we need to drive business. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of things to think through there. And obviously, it does come back to like how you're aligned with the goals of your sales team and also the goals of your executive team. Yeah, I mean, that's always a challenge, right? And I know we've always had that conversation. It's actually, a, it's, it's great conversation, actually. Um, and that's why I guess there's other tools that track, you know, visitors on your website, what companies are they, and go out and take a tool to find out who might be your target audiences there, who might be on your website looking for this. And, you know, and that's another whole layer of generation. Yeah, the, right? the thing about those ideas, though, yeah. they are, the one word when you mention them sticks out to me as being true, which is might. Uh, you layer those tools on your website, and they most certainly are good at telling you what companies are visiting your website. You know, somebody from Oracle's on your webpage. Great. You know, if I went as a marketer to my sales team and said, hey, someone had Oracle's visiting Netline. They've spent the last 15 minutes on these four pages. My sales team would look at me cross-eyed saying, who? Who is that? Because there are 19,000 marketers at Oracle. What do you want me to do with that data? And so is it a nice additional layer to know? Certainly. Is it actionable? Usually not. So that is the, the conundrum with those things. And marketers, you get to a point where you have so many tools and so much data in front of you that you can't actually act upon any of it. Because you, you, and some of it counter argues with itself. So yeah, I'd always caution, focus on deep understanding and adoption of one tool at a time versus bringing on the latest and greatest tools just because you hear peer adoptions. And then unfortunately, you're just going to turn them into toys because you don't <laughs> know how to use them well. Uh, tell me about it. <laughs> you know, I got the, how many of the MarTech landscape do you have, right? Uh, there's 7,000 tools on there. Anyway, it's a whole other story. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, Netline is your company. Why don't you like explain more about Netline, how it works with publishers and and um, the whole process of 
content syndication for those who may not know exactly how you guys work. Sure, sure. So we operate the largest content-centric lead gen platform on the web. We effectively help marketers translate their existing content. And it doesn't have to be an ebook or a white paper. It could be interactive content, could be webinars, or even a future webinar, a live event, uh, into business outcomes, right? I.e. leads that hopefully translate into a attributable pipeline. That's done by the fact that we own and operate the largest consolidation of business and technical content in long form fashion on the web. Short and sweet, there's about 10,000 plus free, completely gated, but free assets such as ebooks, white papers, case studies, podcasts, webinars, covering every possible topic that you can think of available on the platform. That content is responsible for generating between 700,000 and 800,000 gated asset registrations on a monthly basis. Wow. There's a ton, a ton of activity there for us to not only understand actual in-market intent, but more importantly, extract who's downloading what within a specific company and recommend content dynamically to them that suits their job, suits their role, and suits their interests. I mean, kind of view that that byproduct there. It's it's done by an algorithm we developed called Audience Target. Um, I always tell everybody it's very very similar to Amazon's checkout logic, where if you are buying a television, Amazon's going to say, well, statistically, we know people who buy this 47-inch flat screen also tend to buy this surround sound speaker system and so on. We go further because that there, there's some fuzzy logic to that. We go further because it has to be binary and that you might be interested in this content, but perhaps the person who created the content isn't interested in you. And so that, that introduces the notion of filters. And so we have to make sure that although you might be interested in the content, we also need to recommend additional content part of your journey that matches the needs of the content creators in the first place, because then that's what's a qualified lead. And that's how we generate revenue. You know, on the Amazon example, Sony, if someone's buying your TV, Sony could care less if you're a college student or a CEO. It's just, do you have a credit card? That's it. In B2B lead gen, there's a lot more nuance. And so the algorithm needs to be a little bit more sophisticated to take into consideration your company size, your job level, your job area, job function, all that stuff. When you work with publishers and, um... You know, he talked about targeting and things like that, um, and the filters, of course. One thing I didn't mention, though, but this is a pay-per-lead program. Correct. Right? Yeah, so completely performance-based. Out there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's cool because so the history of Netline was that we were a very much a service-oriented business um, up until about three to four years ago, and we had this epiphany that Netline's role in the marketplace is to democratize B2B lead gen, making it simple and giving the B2B marketer the expectations that they've already received from the likes of Google and Facebook, you know, basically like consumer media buying, but apply that to content centric lead gen. Why, why can't that be done? Why do you need to negotiate contracts, go through crazy discussions with sales teams back and forth, countless emails and so on. Why can't you just log into an interface and launch a campaign in minutes? And so that's what we've built. We certainly allow uh, enterprise full service clients if they need optimization and guidance and strategy support and so on. We love those folks. We take care of everything for them. 
they're all the normal companies that you'd expect, but there are thousands of other companies in the world beyond the 500 big tech companies in a 30 mile radius in California. And so much of this industry chases that 30 mile radius. Um, we have that 30 mile radius as our customer roster, but we have globally uh, thousands of people on the platform, which is exceptional. And so getting to the business model, yeah, there's no, there's no cost to have a seat. There's no annual subscription. There's nothing. You create your account. You can flight a campaign. You see transparently what the price per lead will be based upon the filters that you select. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, on the publisher side, you did mention that. Uh, yeah, the, the, the idea for publishers is that we provide them with a technical stack that allows B2B media companies and publishers the ability to more efficiently monetize their various audience touch points via the injection of all of this type of content. Uh, we also give them a tech stack that allows them to natively sell lead gen to their clients using our backend infrastructure. And so think of it as kind of like a mini marketing automation slash uh, uh, audience database tool with some reporting layers on top of it. They get access to all of that technology. And so they're in it to further monetize and enrich their knowledge base about their audience. Some of that data stays in-house. Some of that data is then sold to their clients, none of which we have anything to do with other than being the pipes that power it. Um, But yeah, so the beauty from a marketer's perspective is that through one relationship with Netline, you're covering countless opportunities, over 15,000 B2B tech, career, engineering, finance, manufacturing, web publishers are on the platform. And all of that dynamic inclusion just simply occurs. You don't need to do anything. And so that's always exciting. Um, And I'll get into some questions that I think most marketers need to ask to their vendors as they're contemplating. How do you vet what's the right decision to be making around these types of campaigns? If we have time, at least. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right, right. Because, I mean, just for the big picture here if you're um if you read online trade journals i'm just saying here and you see just for the audiences out there i mean i need to have like other emails and things like that but from a publisher side if you're reading i don't know some trade journal in your industry you see like a resources section from the from the magazine right and yeah their stuff odds are we're powering that Right, right, right. That's saying. So, yeah. So, and think of it this way, right? Media companies, if you're following the B2B marketing landscape, especially the B2B publishing landscape, they're consistently under pressure to evolve, innovate, uh, grow revenues, increase margin, and do so by constantly laying off people. It's a tough business. And so, we've gone into the models saying, well, let's. Let's give you and arm you with a technology stack that allows you to more efficiently monetize your audience. Obviously, we're getting a cut of that monetization um, that helps you to not only you know, live another day, but to flourish. And, and that's been a really, really great opportunity for us to develop unique relationships with those publishers. And so, yeah, all the time, uh, whether you're on like Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, or industry-specific publishers like Questex or um, uh, ALM or any of those sites, and there's countless others. All of that stuff that looks and feels like it's being powered by them, behind the scenes is our infrastructure. It's kind of operating like a normal marketing automation system would. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and the plus side is it's in their best interest to promote the content through their social media, website, newsletters, whatever, because more downloads, more joint revenue. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And also, even even if the users don't convert into a qualified lead for their client, it's still increasing their first party data knowledge of their audience as well, where most media companies are weak in their understanding of who their visitors really are. They do a lot of surveys. They look at Google Analytics and you know, affinity groups and things like that. That doesn't tell you whether it's Jane or Joe. It doesn't tell you, you know, whether Jane works at Oracle or SAP. Um, all of those types of examples. First party data does. Yeah, sure. I'm going to flip flop a question here because I think it makes sense before we get to messaging itself is, um, you know, how does targeting work in the filters and you've talked about the forms earlier, how granular can you get? I know you can do custom questions, but, um, but what's the highlights of, uh, of, building those filters. And sure, sure. So within the interface, you can kind of, I'm trying to get you to picture this while listening to it. Um, you can picture this as a drop-down menu uh, that's a matrix and you can select upon all of the values I'm about to describe. Geographic region down to states in the US, uh, countries and regions externally. Um, from there, company size, company industry, company sub-industry, annualized revenues as well, then job area, job level, and job function. On top of that, you can also even layer ABM specific filters and, and specifically try to hit key accounts. I took the moment last night because I knew you were gonna ask me this question and I had never gone through the exercise of trying to quantify what those filters represent in terms of the variations of filters that the platform supports. It turns out it's 35,925,120 different variations of filters that could be leveraged on the platform before you ever even get to an ABM deployment. So ABM would make that explode because now you're talking about specific companies as well. Right, right. So you can theoretically, and this would be a very common example, uh, let's say you're trying to target a manager level person with an HR related job function located in the US working at a company of 10,000 to 50,000 employees. Um, that type of thing is what we do all day long. And you can actually, in the self-service, if you just go to portal.netline.com, you can create a free account, play around with the filters um, just as part of the campaign process. And you can see that live. Uh, you never even need to launch the campaign. It's um, it's a cool tool to kind of maybe even get ahead of some campaign planning, planning if you're trying to argue for a budget. It's a great way to go in there and see like, all right, this is what I need to go tell my boss later. Maybe not mm -hmm. today. So interesting you say that, you know, with the filters, because, you know, actually this is something we're going to talk about anyway. So I might as well bring it up. You know, all, all the layers of targeting, right? Because obviously people will download content that's not your target. And you won't pay for those, right? Correct. So Correct. even though, but the information is there. So you think about that, the targeting, right? Because again, this is what I'm thinking off the top of my head. You can talk about ABM too. If you only want, you know, I only want decision makers. I want like directors and above and VPs. Well, you're probably going to get less traffic, maybe more qualified. Um, 
But what if the managers are the ones who's doing the research and find something, you know, manager of IT or something, right? And said, so then there's like a something there at the company. Like, why would he download that in the first place? For his own knowledge, it could be, or maybe he's got his own problem at a company that he's trying to figure out. And there's a lead from the company anyway. So I said, should we uh, talk to this guy or go to LinkedIn and find his boss? You know, right? So, uh, so I mean, is that a strategy? Like, you have to think about that a little bit as far as, well, we get more, pay for more names if they're managers. And But do you want to go through that exercise yeah, a little I'll, bit? I'll, it's- so I'll first go with a data-centric response first, and yeah. then I'll offer you some opinions. Sure, so- yeah. Every year, we create an annual uh, B2B content consumption and demand report. And it's an analysis of every lead that we've processed across our platform over the past year. Um, This past year, we analyzed about 5 million leads, which got close to 5 billion data points. The report takes months to comb through between our BI team and then us on the marketing side. And so when it comes to content consumption by executive leadership, uh, 86% of all B2B content that's being consumed happens outside of the C-suite. And so when you have a marketer coming to you or to us, or perhaps one of the listeners here has their CMO or their boss saying, we've got to get this campaign. We we need to reach the C-suite or the C-decision makers at this specific company. Great goal. I don't say ignore them. Certainly keep them in your filter set because there's a chance you'll get through to them. The problem isn't necessarily getting them to see your content. They most certainly are less apt to register for it by default. They might even just kick out an email to somebody and say, hey, this looks like an interesting report. That gets back to your uh, your point, Paul, which is it's probably a manager on their team or even lower saying, can you take a look at this report, write up a quick summary of it, this is you know for this project that we're planning over the next quarter. Give me your brief on it. Um, from there, you're also dealing with the fact that if an executive at the C level registered for said content, what do you do with that data? Because those people are notorious for not responding to emails and not answering phone calls. And so you've got a a snapshot into that company or a signal into the company that someone at the executive level is interested, but you cannot get a hold of them, nor can you forge a relationship with that person. So most salespeople are probably going to get frustrated quickly. So as a smart marketer, you would pivot and make a recommendation to leverage what would be considered like an encirclement strategy. And so you're going into that account, you're intentionally going lower than the C-suite to diversify. Well, in other words, you're targeting influencers. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you're going below targeting the people that influence that decision maker. The key thing there to consider is go to market with content that specifically speaks to the needs of those individual influencers. Because if the influencers in a large company are multifunctional across different departments, you need content that speaks to those departmental needs, um, not just one generic pitch. Because the finance group could care less about your CRM system. Uh, they're probably more interested into how it hooks into you know back backend payment processing and billing and invoicing and all of that stuff. So you need to be speaking to those specific personas with just micro content. It, don't overthink it. I always I always see people like get feared when you say you need to create a ton of content. You probably already have it. Uh, it's part of some larger document today. Just break out that chunk. 
that's relevant to the IT team versus the marketers versus finance or HR, draw up some nice graphics around it, present it as a one pager, something like that, that just instills confidence that when you are going in as a sales leader into that account, everyone who needed to make a decision or at least needed to know about you has experienced some of that content and kind of feels okay about it. Are, are you still gonna have to sell? Absolutely. You're still going to have to convince the value prop and deliver on that most importantly. But with knowledge across multifunctional groups, that becomes far easier than just saying, well, your CEO downloaded this white paper and I'm here to educate you and they have no, they've known nothing about you. These are um, interesting topics or what just call it a little bit minutia, but it's still, it's like micro targeting, I guess, when you talk Absolutely. about content, because what you're really talking about here, which is really the essence of ABM and other things is persona, persona marketing, right? Where managers are more about their day-to-day -day job, make something more efficient, but C-level is maybe bigger picture ROI and you know, cash flow, whatever it is, right, that they have to deal with. So like you mentioned, the decision makers are get overloaded. They have a lot of things on their plate, but the mid, the managers or directors or whatever, the advocates, they say, we need this. Let's do a demo. Let's bring other people in because this, this solution looks really good for our company. You know, because what happens anyway? They're the ones, even if it from the other side, when something needs to get done at a company, guess what? C-level's not going to Google. <laughs> the other guys are. Oh, ben, give, me the, give me your recommendations. Who's on the short list, right? So... And also, yeah, and, and also one thing you always see is that, and this typically is a big fail for a CMO, new CMO comes in, rolls out a completely new MarTech stack, didn't spend any time talking to that person's team, what they do, how they work, the needs and pain points of that team. They might've brought in the best technology in the world if the managers, directors, and, and even lower level influencers aren't bought in on that tech suite, forget it you won't have a job in two years because everything that they are trying to do is being blocked. It's being slowed down. It's they're growing frustrated with the technology. Those people need to be educated and brought in early. Um, there's nothing worse than forcing a unknown technology on a team, regardless of their discipline. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit more about content in your opinion, because we do a lot of content marketing, but um, in your thoughts, what makes a really good white paper that's download friendly, we'll say? Yeah, so I break this into two, two kind of core philosophies. Um, good for you versus good for the user. And so there's a couple things that stick out regardless, but the good for the user side tends to be how you can, you can distill complex ideas into very, very humanized, short titles short titles that heavily reference a listicle or a numeric value, even better. So if you're referencing 2020, great. If you're referencing the top 10 things you need to consider or the nine concerns of X, the 35 ways to fail at Y, all of those things immediately pull at human nature. Um, the psychological response is exponentially greater than what you'd be seeing with just a, a long sentence, which is nothing more than a bunch of technical jargon. Uh, your product engineers or product development team probably love that, but that's not going to be what drives engagement. Um, going 
a bit further, and this is still before I even open the asset or engage with the webinar, having a description of the asset that compels me to really understand beyond the, the title of the asset, what this is about, what am I going to walk away with? It's not just about you, the vendor that you want to convey. What is knowledge that I'm going to walk away with quickly by digesting your content? Right. right. Typically, if you can't do that in three bullets in an artful fashion, I'd question whether the assets to you know to be shared at all. And then lastly, a strong CTA. Just reminding people again, weave in the recognition of what they'll be walking away and try your best to, in that description, speak to the functional role of the person that you're trying to engage with. If you're trying to speak to a product engineer, have that somewhere in the description of that content so that that person who's reading it goes, hey, that's me. This isn't just about marketing anymore or product development. It, they specifically reference that title. That is me. So from there, you can certainly play into some other psychological philosophies like uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Everybody does it. We've had good success around creating urgency um, that's time sensitive. So we'll publish a report or an ebook that's only available for two weeks that drives massive response and then it disappears. Can't get it again. So those types of things are intriguing tests and they work in terms of volume. Now, the other side is that, uh, oh, I forgot one for the user side. The image, the cover image of the asset. Um, people do judge books by their covers. And so you do need to acknowledge that. Just because it's a white paper, please do not publish a white paper with a white paper cover. It needs to have color. It needs to have highly thought design. It needs to be artful. It should not be just the title of the document. Oh, right, and right. Your logo yes. on it. Comically, that's still occurring all over the place. There are thousands of marketers that do that. And just remove yourself and place yourself in a consumer type mindset and say you're on Amazon and you hear that there's some best-selling book and you go to look at it and it simply has a white cover with the title on it. It's not compelling you to go further. It's almost scaring you to back up. So- Get Canvas, that, everyone, get Canvas, go ahead. That's right, yeah, Canvas, <laughs> phenomenal tool. You look like a pro like in, in five minutes. Yeah. Um, so now that we understand kind of the upfront side of judging content and trying to make it predisposed to be engaged with by prospects, what makes a great asset inside? Uh, this is the part where it, it gets a little bit more abstract and that it, the heaviest lifting was done upfront, right? The core goal of these assets is to drive engagement, then educate. If the asset isn't designed internally to educate, then you've got a dud on your hands. Education doesn't mean that it has to be a grandiose, you know, 55 page document. I've seen some phenomenal ones where it's a checklist. It's literally one page and it's saying, you know, you're thinking about deploying, I don't know, a, um, a cloud-based um, uh, virtualized system. You're looking at that and there could be, there are eBooks that are hundreds of pages long. This is saying, here's the top 10 things that you need to check off before evaluating a vendor, done. That's phenomenal. And actually that kind of document really highly aligns to more bottom of funnel content. And so that certainly needs to be a thought process as well from the marketer's side is when you judge about what's good for content syndication and lead gen, I'd always ask the marketer, what's the goal that you've committed to internally? 
you know, is this just about massively increasing the pipe inside? Is it about building a nurture database? Is this about trying to deliver as many bottom of funnel leads as possible? The usual answer is all of the above. Yeah. Um, and that's okay, but then you need to have content that speaks to those things. So like having a checklist or a product matrix being extreme bottom of funnel content, maybe alongside a case study. And then top of funnel, things like, I don't know, maybe work with Wiley and go license a dummies guide about a topic that your business does. You'll pull in, you'll pull in three times the amount of leads that you do in a year, and you'll do that in a month by doing that kind of thing. Um, but again, yeah. it's about balancing what's important at that time. Yeah setting expectations, and most importantly, making sure that you have executive yeah. buy-off on those decisions as well. Well, I tell clients, I cut to the chase a little bit. I said, look, um, you'll get, you want potential buyers, not information seekers, okay? So that means you have to understand your audience, really look into research and find out what specific problems they may have, right? And Really, it's about when people convert on a form and they're going to fill that stuff out, they have to be convinced, fixed to convince here, that I can't get this anyplace else, that this message to me and how it's written is talking to me, that I just, I need to have this now. Because I can always go to Google and research blogs about it, right? But, Absolutely. you know, we want to make it so unique and interesting that I should get this now. Right. Yeah, and one so, way to even build on that is to present the notion of uh, serialized content. And so you're giving them some piece of content to immediately register for, but prominently with that registration, have messaging there that says, this is piece one of four that you will receive over the coming month that will continuously educate you further through the maturity of whatever that topic might be. Um, a, it sets expectations that they're going to hear from you again, which is always good. You know, they're not that much more prone to leave if they knew it was going to happen in the first place. But it's creating an extension of a relationship with that user and also giving that user the ability to have multiple points in time that they might take a pause and say, mm, yeah, maybe I will engage with uh, this contact us link on their site or I'm on their site and they're using Drift. I might just reach out and ask a question and learn a little bit more about, do you have this feature or what's the pricing on this package? Things like that. And all of those data points are aggregated because you're using content to drive those dialogues. Um, without the content, then the only thing you're doing is, you know, shoving salespeople at, at everyone. And, and that, that's a tough one. Yeah. Well, that's how buyers make decisions. Probably the number one thing, uh, well, is trust, maybe more than price and, yeah, yeah. Kind of things. And yeah. whether it's Gartner or I'm mean, countless sources, serious decisions, they all say something similar, which is, you know, 80 plus percent of buyer B2B buyer activity, uh, the, the conclusion has been made before they ever reach out to you, the vendor who they're going with. And that's based upon content consumption largely. So if you're not communicating to your market, um, they will likely go to another vendor who is. And then also, uh, the ability and role that public reviews play outside of your own website, namely G2. And so if you're a vendor who is a SaaS technology and you're not there cultivating reviews and, and arguably only having favorable ones, 
uh, you might as well not exist because that is a huge third-party barometer now in understanding transparently as well uh, that your product is great, it's terrible, it's middle of the road, but your buyers can see that. It's very much like Yelp. You know, do you want to go to this restaurant? Oh, it only has three stars. Mm, probably not. Let's go look at another one. Hmm. And it's the same same exact idea. Uh, you know, if you're if you are experiencing uh, great relationships and feedback from your customers, lean into that. If you're not, I'd, I'd caution, get that stuff in order before creating a G2 account and, and rallying around it. Yeah. We know relationships is, is pretty critical, especially today. And I mean, really the process is you're, the more targeted and problem solving your content is, and you have very specific target audiences, you have a, a, a nice set of names, right? That you can actually start you know, again, determining on your business model, are they worth calling now or should we nurture them a little bit more and maybe send them a free demo, uh, you know, and again, that's up to a, a cadence process, right? If you can test, of course, but um, do you have any other um, thoughts on, you know, got names, now what? Yeah, that's a tough one because it largely depends upon your product sales lifecycle, your product price point, the right. complexity of your product. Yep. And there's a lot of nuances there that I could say gross misstatements here and be inaccurate for half of the audience and perfectly accurate on others. Uh, so my caution, I, I suppose, that will be accurate for everyone is to understand those core downstream KPIs understand what you're aiming to impact. So if you're trying to shorten the sales cycle, what kind of content would allow you to do that? Um, if you're trying to get prospects, not only to act more quickly, but be more engaged so that you've got less need for kind of a sales engineer and just your sales team can book business because it's more efficient, then you're gonna need to lean in towards content that's actually a, a bit more product feature oriented versus you know visionary oriented stuff. So look at all of those, those hurdles that your sales team faces normally and reverse engineer the, type, the types of content that you need to create to then work in your nurture path. That timeline then becomes things that you can test quite easily, but it's very hard to say that you've ever got this perfect because of the timeline. If your average sales cycle is six months, okay, well, you're trying to work within that window. And if you're trying to condense it to five, there's a lot of things that you can do but you're not going to know until you've done this for probably six months worth of data as to whether or not you've had any impact aside from driving engagement, right? The ultimate goal being let's, let's keep an eye on those closed one opportunities and go upwards from there. But yeah, yeah. I, I would really spend a lot of time talking to sales and finding out where they struggle and create content that speaks to those pain points, work that content into the nurture path so that you're heading those channels, those conflicts off before they even get to your rep. Yeah. Kind of making it a, a little bit fun here a little bit in a weird way. But, you know, when if you do really good problem solving content, you get managers or whatever, you're getting names. Salespeople might say, we get those. Uh, uh, and marketing could say, well, not yet, not yet. Right. Um, you know, we just, just names right now. Let's qualify them a little more, send them more education and, you know, what if they don't open up any more emails and you're not lead scoring them? Um, can we get them? You know, that kind right. of thing. Right. Um, you know, I mean, again, it's a, it's a, it's a decision, you know, whether it goes to CRM or marketing automation and 
depending on, you know, the message, I guess. And, you know, every company is different, especially if uh, salespeople are hungrier and they want marketing leads and, um, you know, but you yeah. work them a little bit, but thoughts there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it is, it is a struggle. Um, I'll speak on my case. We generate a ton of leads too much that could be sent to sales directly. So only the highest scoring leads get sent to sales directly. Um, largely, we're fortunate, right? We're, we're sitting on top of our own infrastructure that's responsible for generating leads for countless companies. So we tap into that as well. Um, because of that, most of our initial leads are going through a super sophisticated nurture path, which technically can last months. There's about 14 different tracks all sequence-based, based upon your engagement um, and going down different directions and or consuming different content. And so that drives a lot of the downstream behavior and can eventually get back to what you had mentioned, Paul, which is a sales rep is seeing this. All of those activities that are driven by our nurture path are logged in the Salesforce automation tool. And so in, in our case, that's Salesforce. And so they can see those activities and then decide, hey, um, looks like Mary's been really engaging lately. I'm going to reach out. And because I feel like I've seen enough that I'm good with this. Uh, other times, they might, because of just workload, they might want to watch a little bit longer before reaching out. And then, like you said, if there's an eager rep or perhaps they've you know cleared out a block and they've got some time to dig in on net new accounts, they'll dive into a lot more that otherwise wouldn't have been sent to them right away. Uh, that's probably the biggest mistake you can make as a marketer, though, for any of these types of campaigns. Please don't take all of the leads and immediately dump them over to sales. You, again, will be finding yourself in career drama that will instantaneously occur. Yeah, they might. And sales comes back and says, oh, we're not getting great leads from you guys or, you know, because we haven't, you know, it's you really got to work it. I'll, I'll ask one more question on that, by the way. Sure. We're almost done here is, um, you know, there's the, the dreaded, I call it like the dreaded HubSpot question on our forums, which is, are you looking to buy a solution within three months, six months, a year, or just looking, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know? In, in other um, words, AKA, do you want to get in touch with the salesperson now? Or? Yeah, I think there's more artful ways of asking the question. I do understand the necessity, and basically, anytime you see that the sales org is wagging the tail uh, of marketing, and the sales org basically said to marketing, I'm not taking leads from you unless they say that they're buying in the next three months. Anything else can go into nurture, and then at some point, we will take them. That's an organizational battle that you can fight. Uh, so you're blue in your face. You might have data to support that that's the right decision, or it might be data supporting that's the wrong decision. So see that through. But I think other artful ways of asking the same types of question is like, would, would you like to have like a consultative experience to learn more about how this solves your pain points, things like that, where you're not necessarily even handing it to a salesperson. It's about, uh, you know, in many cases, like you could try to connect a solutions architect with uh, this prospect where it legitimately is an exploratory education forward call or Zoom um, that has no salesperson on it. There's no pricing could be mentioned because that person doesn't even know the pricing. And they say, hey, you brought up a pricing question. Thanks. Um, you know, I'll let Jane get back to you after this. My role here is just to answer some questions, make sure that you're comfortable with what we do. 
And that's non-threatening. And I think that's welcome in today's market, especially as millennials are more and more responsible for making these decisions. Uh, that speaks to why they use content so much before talking with the rep. They quite honestly despise it. Um, they tend not to even want to be on the phone, which is another issue. And so if you can address those issues and don't think that you can change them, you can't. That's the, the way the market is buying. And so conform. Um, the beauty is through com uh, you know, some level of, of conformant, um, you're able to have fun too. Like B2B is loosening up far more than what it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. So it's okay to have a personality. It's okay to be playful. Don't be inappropriate. Playful is fine. And, uh, and you know, yeah. I'd, say, I'd say reach a little bit with those types of messages. I've seen some funny ones saying like, you know, straight up, our sales team loves talking with people like you. You know, I don't know if this works, but I love the integrity and the honesty associated to that statement, mm -hmm. which is you're going to have very few people check the box, but those that do, they really, they really want to talk to you. So yeah, lots of things to consider. Yeah. How about, um, I'm new with this. I'm a new salesperson and I get bonuses on how many people I talk to. Can you help me out? <laughs> we'll get far with that, but yeah. okay. Anyway, um, so um, this is all interesting conversations here. Let me just ask you, we talk about nurturing and um, buying cycles and things like that, but this is not just for software companies in IT, right? Manufacturers? Yeah, manufacturers are huge on our platform. I believe it's our third largest segment of lead gen, uh, which is pretty compelling. Yeah, at the core, we support the needs of marketers who are reaching into whether it's an engineering-oriented environment, trying to reach manufacturers, production line folks, agriculture industry professionals, finance, banking, um, obviously reaching sales and marketing and IT, really you name it, oil and gas, utilities, energy, all of that. So um, yeah, we're extremely broad. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. We just recently published a case study with a company called Agreco. And Agreco is, and I'm probably gonna poorly describe what they do. They are a on-demand um, power supply, industrial power supply company. So think like massive power supply generators that come in on a tractor trailer globally. And so that was an example of an extreme fringe type of product. And their ROI, I believe was over 1300% uh, on by working with us. So yeah, you don't have to be a marketer at a leading technology company to benefit from our capabilities. And if anything, um, you know, we believe we've democratized that, that entire notion and that your budget, your strength in the marketplace and or your level of sophistication as a marketer doesn't matter to us. You can yeah. use a self-service tool and launch a campaign in minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, from a manufacturing side, you're still educating. Maybe it's about how a solution works, you know, how to choose the right controls or, you know, whether it's used or new, replay, and whatever it is, it's, there's still some education involved. And again, you target it toward those audiences. Um, but any um, anybody who's new at content syndication, if you want to summarize, um, you know, any kind of advice for companies, um, how would you summarize getting started? And I would do two things. Um, one, 
for spending and wasting a ton of time reading so-called marketing guru content throughout the web, I would talk to your sales team. Spend as much time as you can with your sales team. Try to sit in on as many sales calls as possible and really understand the needs of your customers. Understand who they are, where they sit in their organizations, the pain points they have. Even understand how your sales team currently responds. Sit quiet, listen, take notes, make observations. Some of the things you're going to see or hear are going to be appalling. Some of them are going to be genius. And that's going to be fostering a lot of creativity afterwards. Uh, from there, I would start, once you know the pain points, that should be an easy way to start ideating the types of content you need to create. And assuming that you were able to really understand the key personas that you need to target inside yep. those accounts, yep. you've got those yep. two pieces done. The only additional thing that I would tell you to do is that instead of knowing your persona and knowing the content strategy now, I take you, I challenge you to go further and understand what those types of people are already consuming across the web. What's the content that resonates with them today? And who's actively in your target prospects organizations doing that type of content consumption? That helps you inform your first strategy as to who do you really need to reach versus who does your perhaps sales team or marketing leadership want you to reach? And so um, we, this is a self plug, so I apologize, but it's completely free. There's no cost to it. If you go to netline.com, you'll see links either in the header or on the homepage for a tool called Audience Explorer. Audience Explorer shows a obfuscated view of all B2B content consumption behavior that's occurred over the past 180 days on our platform. Oh. And it allows you to slice and dice the data by job function, job, job level, industry, sub-industry, uh, company size, region, and so on. Once you've done doing those slicing exercises, you can then look at the top trending topics, the top trending formats of content. It's interesting to see like uh, certain people gravitate towards eBooks, others webinars, other technical documents. Uh, from there, you can actually see a section of the most active in-market companies as well as just a snapshot. And it shows you the job level of the person at that company, their job area, and the topic that that person actually downloaded or registered for. So it gives you insights beyond what you heard or experienced with sales and talking with your customers. It gives you insights at scale, right? You're tapping into hundreds of millions of data points and saying, okay, so now knowing what I know internally, here's some external vectors that I need to consider as well. And those shouldn't be gospel, but those are certainly helpful in really understanding, am I going down the right path or not? Or maybe I should go a little further here because we are going to create one piece of content but it looks like there's a couple of different job levels that all have the same pain point, but the job levels definitely want to consume content differently. So like you might get away with directors and managers having the same type of content, but a senior exec is going to want something really bottom line oriented and brief uh, while someone lower is probably going to need to know more, right? They're, they're the one making the recommendation upwards. So they need to have more confidence and knowledge in making that recommendation. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Okay, good. Because you're kind of validating your own research to make sure that there's a market for it um, based on what you see. And you may need to pivot a little bit, but... Um, but it, yeah, because oftentimes, yeah. yeah, oftentimes your own research inside your company, it's the best data and insights that you'll have, but it's also 
it tends to be extremely small in terms of sample size, unless you're just happening to work at a massive organization and a massive sales team that you can ride along with. Um, if you're not at that end of the spectrum, all of those learnings are hugely important, but I would just caution you to level set them and, and have some barometer or a tool like Audience Explorer to help you. Another tool would be Google Trends. Um, open Google Trends, do some keyword queries based upon things that you thought you wanted to target. And just look over the past year, six months, because going back further doesn't really help you. And really understand, are these things that people are, are searching for right now, or are they not? And if they are, that's great. It's just another data point to say, all right, cool. We need to make sure our content is weaving that into the narrative too. And it's external available too. So in the description of that, the, the asset or in the title, not just buried inside the PDF, that's not good enough because that doesn't come up in a keyword query and they won't see it if they get to a web page. So yeah, definitely think about those things. But I, I think those two tools help you get very far in understanding what B2B buyers and researchers are actively doing. Great, great. Well, great conversation, David. Thanks. Yeah, I enjoyed it. This was, uh, this was very fun. And um, yeah, as you can tell, I talk about this stuff for hours, so. <laughs> right, right. Stay tuned for part two. So, <laughs> right, right. So we, you know, but anyway, um, netline.com, check it out. Listen, it, it's, it is what you put into it. That's your results is it's not just is you targeting the right audience with the right message and then having a great process to after lead we call it right what is that cadence what is that process and, and make sure it's all aligned and um because they are names they are companies and they're in your pipeline and manage it <laughs> yeah and don't forget right a lot of marketers are conditioned to be targeting personas once you're using gated content as a way to capture first party data, you've just gone from targeting a persona to targeting a person. Yes. Remember that, right? It's it's your responsibility to treat them with respect, treat them the way that you would want to be treated, educate them thoughtfully, have some empathy, especially right now. And I hate the word empathetic marketing because everybody says it, but right now, right now right. It, does, it does mean something. Last year, it didn't mean anything. Um, when everybody was saying it, but 2020 is a time where patience, empathy, understanding is like what's going on in that company is really, really important. And you don't need to, you know, have bumper stickers on the front of your content screaming it, but just be cognizant and coach your sales team and to have similar f approaches and philosophies. Right. For sure. All right. Think about it. Listen to this podcast multiple times. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's a lot of great insights in here, but um, yeah, so it's it's a business process, really, and it's not just names; it's creating relationships. That's what B two B is all about, especially now. It always has been, anyway. So, thanks for joining me today. Of course, thank you so much for having me, Paul. I appreciate sure. it. Sure, that's netline.com. All right, Paul Moses and Stick Stick Events. There'll be other podcasts soon. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to get more marketing optimization insights. Fix the convince.